Please unite your hearts and wills with mine as we pray together. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, our world feels remarkably different than it did just a year ago. And we often feel distressed by the thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors of people. More than ever, we need to fix our minds and our hearts on you, believing and trusting in you as our Creator and our Redeemer. As we hear the Gospel of John this morning, help us to trust you more fully and to follow you with renewed determination, confident in your love for the world you died to save and your sovereign power to redeem and repair that which feels so broken. Amen. Last Sunday, Graham began a new sermon series for a new year based on the Gospel of John. And the title for today's sermon is Signs, Not Miracles. Well, what is a sign? What is a miracle? We know what signs are because they're everywhere. Sometimes there are so many signs around us that we just simply ignore them all. But that can be counterproductive because signs are meant to be helpful. Uh, They point us in right directions, or they alert us that we're headed in a wrong direction. Sometimes signs warn us of dangers or threats that we would certainly prefer to avoid. And we are familiar with miracles because we've read about them in the Bible for most of our lives. But what is a miracle? A starting definition could be God's loving intervention in our time of need. Or to make it more personal, God doing something for us that we could not do ourselves. That's a miracle. The Gospels report that Jesus performed many miracles in the few short years of his public ministry. Healing men and women and children, even bringing dead people back to life. Miracles in the Bible are God's supernatural response to human needs that fall beyond human remedy. In the New Testament, there are four different words that we translate into English as miracle. And each of these four words portray a different human feeling or response in the hearts of the people who witnessed the miracle. The first word is teres. It means basically wonder. About 40 years ago, many churches were talking about signs and wonders. They were really talking about miracles. Those are two words for miracle in the New Testament, signs and wonders. So wonder. This word terror suggests that a true miracle has a wow factor. The miracle awakens in us a feeling of awe and wonder. The question raised by the miracle is, how did that happen? We We react to miracles with wonder. The second word is dunamis, or power. It has the same root as dynamite. The miracle makes an observer think, that's amazing, and then asks the question, what kind of power made that happen, and where did that power come from? The third word is paradoxin, or paradox. Miracles break the normal rules of our world, making a witness think, this isn't supposed to happen, but it did. Five weeks from now, Graham is going to be looking in John at the healing of a man who had been blind from birth. That 
the healing was not supposed to happen. Those things don't change, but it did. The fourth word is simian, or sign. With this word, the miracle is seen as pointing us to something we need to do, to think, believe, or to act in a new way. The miracle is a sign pointing us in some kind of new direction. Now, the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, can be divided and usually are divided into two groups. There's the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic meaning they basically talk about the same stories, same material. John's Gospel is different, stands alone. Uh, the synoptics use basically all four words for miracles, but mostly the first three. John's Gospel, when he writes about miracles, only uses the word sign. It says one word for miracle. Then he goes on in his Gospel to describe seven signs, seven miracles. Jesus turns water into wine. Jesus heals a nobleman's son. Jesus heals an impotent man who's completely crippled, can't do anything for himself. He needs help. Been ill for 38 years. Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women and children with a boy's lunch. Jesus walks on water in the middle of a storm. Jesus heals a man who is blind from birth. Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. Those are the seven signs or miracles that John focuses on in his gospel. Now, he didn't even come close to listing all the miracles, and he knew that, and he acknowledged that fact in the very last verse of his gospel. He looked at the very end, the very last verse. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would have enough room for the books that would be written. Jesus did many miracles, John says. But these seven are the ones I want you to focus on. Now, how did he decide which miracles to, to use, which signs, his preferred word for miracle? He tells us at the end of chapter 22, basically using the story of the disciple named Thomas to make his point. Now, Thomas is a member of Elam Chapel. I hope you realize that. He's right back there in that corner window that you can hardly see. So I've put him on the screen so you can get a better look at him. Thomas is part of our church. Now let's review the story. On the evening of Easter Sunday, the day of the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples who were huddled in a locked room because they were afraid of what might happen next. Now Thomas... Thomas wasn't there. We're never told why, but he wasn't in that room. And when Jesus appeared to his disciples, they were filled with joy. And the first chance they got, they told Thomas what had happened. And Thomas refused to believe them. He said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A disciple said that? that? That's pretty alarming. Now, a week passed, and the disciples were again in a locked room, and this time Thomas was with them, and Jesus arrived again, not bothered by the locked door. And he spoke directly to Thomas. 
He obviously knew what Thomas had said the week prior. And he said, no rebuke, no words of rebuke, but an invitation. Thomas, put your finger here. Thomas, look at my hands, see my hands. Thomas, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas did as he was told and then declared his full faith and allegiance to Jesus, saying, My Lord and my God. Doesn't hurt to look at that back window once in a while and focus on those top words, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus said to Thomas, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet had believed. That one sentence now stands to encompass people over 2,000 years. We haven't seen Jesus in the flesh, but we have believed, and we're blessed by that. Thomas believed. Now look at the next two verses. Immediately, nothing in between. The next two verses Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his, of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You notice how carefully John has crafted his book, his letter? He tells us a story about Thomas's disbelief and then a week later, Thomas believes, and Jesus commends him for believing and talks about all those who will believe. And he says, I could have told you many stories about miracles, but these I have told you in order to help you believe. John desires that every person who reads his gospel would believe in Jesus. There are three keys to understanding the purpose and structure of the gospel of John. Three words. Signs, believe, and life. We begin with signs. The signs are the seven miracles performed by Jesus in the Gospel of John, which point to his compassion for people and his power to meet them in their time and place of need and to act powerfully on their behalf. The miracles show us the compassion and power. And that's why John tells us these stories. The second word is believe, not belief. Belief is a noun. Believe is a verb. John wants us to act. One, one commentary I have on my shelves, and I think it's the first Bible commentary I ever bought. Yeah, the title of it is John, the Gospel of Belief. Really ought to be the Gospel of Believing. And the guy who actually makes that argument is the guy who wrote the book. So I'm thinking his... A publishing house must have changed the title on him. You know, they'll do that once in a while to get more sales, possibly. It's the gospel of believing. The word believe as a verb appears 98 times in the gospel of John. 98 times he exhorts us to believe. To believe in something or someone is revealed in action and behavior. It involves committing to someone or trusting someone. Believing is listening, following, trusting, obeying. 
Believing is not just giving your assent to some proposition. Believing in Jesus comes from learning to know Him by time spent in Scripture, time spent in prayer, time spent in worship, and time spent in fellowship with other believers. How often in conversations with just someone in church are we encouraged to believe as we hear their story? That's how we believe. Believing leads to life. It's the, three, the third word that's a key to understanding the Gospel of John. He says, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in His name. What is this life that he's talking about? Well, let me read two verses to help us get this into focus. John 10.10 The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to its full. Jesus wants us to have life. And then he says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is life knowing Jesus. Life being in a relationship with Jesus. We speak of sometimes abundant life, rich and full life. Jesus said, you might have abundant life. The life that comes from believing in Jesus gives us much more than just a life that doesn't end. It is really life like Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. I've never really quite figured out whether Adam and Eve would have lived forever without the fall. I don't think they would have. The eternal life they had, the life everlasting, the beautiful life they had was a life of walking with God in intimate fellowship, which they did every day. Every day they walked in intimate fellowship with God. That's life that Jesus wants us to have. Now, John wants us to believe, and he wants us to have life, and he builds his argument around seven signs. The first sign in the Gospel of John is a miracle in the village of Cana in Galilee. And that's where we're starting our exploration of John. I'm going to read the the story to you. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom and said, Everybody brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. 
What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee, John adds, was the first of the signs that revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. His very first story emphasizes the point of the gospel. We hear these stories about Jesus' miracles so that we can believe. Well, what are the key facts in the story? There was a wedding in Cana. Jesus' mother was there and, and the disciples were there. Some commentators suggest that Jesus, Mary was there in an official category. She had some job to do. And Jesus were the, and the disciples were just along as a ride. They weren't invited guests. They came because Mary was there. And then they say the reason they ran out of wine is Jesus and his disciples drank all the, the wine. No, it doesn't work, does it? But some have suggested that. Not, not, not really that they were drinking too much wine, but just, there were just too many guests for the amount of wine that the host had provided. Anyway, it, it does appear that, that Mary was there in some kind of official category because she goes to Jesus saying, they're running out of wine. Now, why was that such a big problem? The people assembled in that room were the guests of the bride and groom and their families. And in that culture, there were strong, rigid rules for hospitality embedded in the culture. And they had to follow those rules. And one of those rules was don't run out of food and drink. Running out of wine would have been an insult to the guests. They weren't worthy that the host would provide enough wine. And likely a long, even lifelong embarrassment for the bride. Oh, yeah, that's Fred and Jane. Remember, they, they ran out of wine. The story would have followed, followed them and haunted them the rest of their lives. One commentator, and I, and I never found any background for this argument, one says that they could have even been sued in court for not having enough wine. I've only found one guy that ever said that. Anyway, it was a serious problem. Jesus' response to his mother's bringing that problem to him was almost unchristlike. it feels. Almost it seems rude and cold. Why do you involve me? My hour is not yet come. Well, that's a difficult phrase to wrestle with. But there's a very good chance that what it was is one of those idiomatic phrases that doesn't translate well. We have a lot of English idioms that you just can't translate into another language. If you make them word for word, they make no sense whatsoever. And there are several other places where Jesus speaks in this idiomatic Middle Eastern tone that doesn't translate well. And this is probably one of those. And, and some people suggest that the best translation would be, Mom, this is my situation to deal with. Mom, this is my affair entirely. Leave it to me. And you know something? That fits the context of the story because what happens next? Mary goes to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. So I think that's a good translation. Do whatever he tells you to do. Jesus then tells us that 
John tells us Jesus had seen these six empty water jars. You'd have these big stone jars of water at the entrance to your house so that when guests would come, they could wash their hands and wash their feet and get ready to enter into your house. And they were large jars, holding 20 to 30 gallons of water, or maybe we might say 75 to 115 liters of water. So Jesus tells the servants to fill them with water and bring them to him. Those guys had to think, that's a silly waste of time and a whole lot of work. How much would those jars weigh filled with that much water? That's a lot of work. But they did it. They followed Mary's orders and did what Jesus told them to do. Once that was done, Jesus said to them, Now draw some water out of one of those jars and take it to the host of the banquet. Now filling the jars was maybe a waste of time and energy in their minds, but this second command was another matter. They're supposed to go to the host with a glass full of wine, give it to him, and he's going to drink it, and then what's going to happen? He'll spit it out. You brought me water? Lukewarm water? Where's the wine? No servant wants to be in that position. But one of those servants in that group steeled up his courage far enough that he was able to do that. And he took the wine to the host, and the wine sipped it and said, Wow. One of the responses to a miracle. Wow. But the wow factor wasn't that, that there was wine. The wow factor was, hey, you know, you know the rules. You give the guests the best wine first. And after they've drunk a couple of glasses, their taste buds are getting a little bit tired. And then you give them the cheap wine and they don't even notice it. But you've given them the best wine first. This was a miracle. But more than that, it was a sign pointing to the compassion of Jesus for a young bride and groom who had very little status in their community and also to show his power to solve their problem. By an act of his will, without any magic, he turned the water into excellent wine. But we also see not just his power, we see his generosity. He gave them not only enough wine for the guest and for that banquet, but probably much more. Let's say they, they, there was 100, waters, 100 liters of water. Uh, that would maybe translate, given six jars, to 600 liters of wine. Very good wine. Far more than they needed. One, one person suggested that would be about 2,400 glasses of wine. Well, what are they going to do with all that leftover wine? It's in open jars. They're going to sell it. And that poor young bride and groom who are start, starting out life together, probably with not much money, have now got a nest egg. Jesus shows us his power, his compassion, his love. There's some really fine theology in the old songs we once sang and now dismiss is childish. And maybe one of the best is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so.
Let us pray. Lord, in, in seeing this sign, in seeing your compassion and your power to deal with the human need for which there was no human remedy at that time, we see your love. And we're amazed at such love. And in times when we're honestly thinking about our lives, we look back and we see your love in our lives. And we say, not so much Jesus loves me for the Bible tells me so. We realize Jesus loves me because he's been present in my life, doing things for me that I couldn't do myself giving me tasks to do that I never would have thought myself worthy of doing. Jesus loves me. Lord, you do love us, and we thank you this morning. Help us to know you better and to believe in you more and to see you as the one who is our Redeemer, but not for us personally only, but for the whole world. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.